we've got much to cover today, and I want to get straight to the text. We return to Mark, first chapter in Mark, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? And would you make this book live to me? For it's in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. So we spent quite a bit of time two weeks ago in these very same, these very same verses talking about the kingdom of God and, and exploring what it was that Jesus meant when he said that the kingdom of God was at hand. And as we walked, as we walked, through, as we walked through those texts together, we, we came to recognize that the, that the kingdom of God had come, the kingdom of God had been inaugurated, and yet it wasn't what the people expected to come. And the, the people were forced in to ask themselves a question, how do we respond to this kingdom? You're telling us that the kingdom of God is near. You're telling us that you are the king and that you have come to make all things right. Now, what's an appropriate response? And that's a good question to ask. When Jesus Christ arrives and he's preaching the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, the gospel that is Christ, when he's proclaiming himself and he's telling us that the kingdom has come, surely a, surely a claim as audacious as that requires a response. And so for the people in that time, they tended to ask, well then, does this mean that it's time for us to take up arms? Are we to grab our swords, follow after King Jesus, lay low the people of Rome, and capture this freedom for ourselves? Today we don't ask those same kind of questions. We ask different questions. What does it mean that the kingdom of God has come? What must I do to earn this kingdom? What must I do to grasp this kingdom? What must I do to qualify myself for this kingdom? And asking those questions in and of themselves are not bad. They are not wrong. Because again, a, a claim with this much power, a claim with this with this much significance, that the kingdom of God is at hand. This claim that God in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his sovereignty, in his perfection would look upon lowly men and send his son to reconcile us to him, it requires a response. Simply knowing that the kingdom is here, simply knowing about this gospel, this isn't enough. So Jesus' answer 2,000 years ago is the same answer today. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe. In theological circles, we use the term conversion. You hear about someone being converted, undergoing a conversion, being a convert. Within the church, within the life of the Christian people, it means exactly this. They have repented and they have believed in the name of Jesus Christ. They have believed in the gospel. It's that flashpoint. It's that moment when that which God has ordained before the very beginning of time, which that which God has been working through all creation to bring to happen, right there at that moment, we repent, we believed. God has gone before us and he's awakened us. He's given us eyes that see. He's given us ears that hear. He's given us a mind that can understand the gospel. He's given us a heart that can see and truly cherish Christ. And then at that moment, there is guaranteed to be a response. That guaranteed response is repentance and belief. Repentance and faith, which is guaranteed to lead to an eternal life and glory with him. Now, for many of us, you can remember that exact moment. You know where you were and you know who you were with. You remember the emotions that you underwent. You remember what you were wearing. You remember the first person that you told. You remember the smell of the cologne on the pastor's neck as you came to cling to him and tell him that you wanted to receive this Jesus. For others of us, we don't remember at all. It seems so much more vague. 
We don't know where we were. We know that we are saved. We see evidence of that conversion. We see today a life that's lived in faith and in repentance. But we had wrestled with this gospel for so long. We had heard this truth so many times. We know that we're saved, but we can't tell you the exact moment or the exact second when we did. We just know, in fact, that we had come. So what you'll find then as you walk throughout the scripture is that repentance and faith or repentance and belief, it, it just absolutely clutters. It's just, it just all over the word of God. You see these truths just, just jumping out, demanding a reaction from us. And this, this call to conversion, it's just the drumbeat of God's people, particularly during the church era. But I need to make a, need to make a point to you this morning. So as I sat down and I prepared for our sermon, I just went through and I started jotting down text, just dot, jotting down scripture that I knew called us to either repent or believe. And then I, I, I wrestled with the, with the text. I wrestled with the word and I, and I found some more. And so I've listed uh, about 22 of those in the front of your bulletin for you there. Now this is not an exhaustive list. There are more. These are just the ones that I could come up with fairly quickly. And you aren't surprised to see that there's a lot because you know that throughout God's word, he's calling us either to repent or to believe. But here's where things got interesting. Because then I thought, you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to look up now all the texts where it says to both repent and believe or to repent and have faith. I thought surely there must be a bunch of them, right? Because you know, we know that you must have repentance and faith in order to be saved. We know that that's the call of Jesus Christ himself. He said it. I preach it. And so I thought, you know, surely for every one text that calls us to repent or believe, there must be two or three that call us to repent and believe. And instead what I found was that with the exception of this morning's text, I couldn't find hardly any. Now here's the problem. When I put something like that into your bulletin, and when I make a claim like that, I know what's going to happen. You people are going to immediately get out your magic Google box or whatever it is Chuck calls a phone. You're going to get out your mag magic Google box, and you're going to start trying to find other texts to prove me wrong. I'm not telling you that this is the end-all, be-all of lists. Feel free. You have all afternoon. Get on the Internet and go find some. I welcome your submissions because I would genuinely like to know the texts that I've missed. But I think the point is, is that when we look at this, we see that there's just not that many. There's Mark. Uh, Mark, the first chapter in Mark, verse 15, that we just read. There's Acts 20, 21, where we read the words of Paul as he's talking to the elders in Ephesus. He said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. Hebrews 6, 1 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance of dead works and of faith towards God. This talks about faith towards God, but as you know, no one comes to the Father except through the Son. And so he's talking here about faith and belief, and that's about it. I had some other people double-checking me, and they came up with some more texts, but frankly, they're a bit of a stretch. They required some, some, some big jumps in our mind based on what we already know about repentance and belief to get there. And so this is it, but why? Why did I just waste my time? Why did I waste half of your bulletin, and why did I just waste five minutes explaining to you this? Because I think, it's, I think this is what it tells us, right? I think that it tells us that for the apostles and for those that are in the kingdom of God and for God himself as he's expressing this truth, that faith and repentance are so tightly bound together that you cannot have one without the other. That they are so inseparable that to talk about one is to talk about the whole. There's a fancy literary term. It's called synecdoche. A synecdoche is a, is, a, is, a, is a turn of phrase where you can speak about a part of something and refer to the whole. Like when a kid gets a car and he says, I got some new wheels, right? And when you talk about a knife, you talk about a blade. And so I think that that's what's happening here. I think that, that so tightly bound together are faith and repentance that whenever you want to talk about this thing called conversion, all you have to do is reference one or another. You can't have 
true saving faith without repentance. You can't have saving repentance without true faith. That those two things must be together, so much so that throughout God's word, we see just one or the other referenced here. This is more critical than you might think at first. You see, this was a, this was a real problem in the church, particularly, particularly around, the, around the 16th century. There was a... Uh, there, there, was, there was great fear on, on, on the part of the church. There's a, there's a guy named Martin Luther and, and, and other people like him. As they came and they rightly preached that man is saved by faith alone, there was this kind of recoil, this, this, this pullback from the church. They said, wait a minute. If you're going to tell people that they are saved by faith alone, they shall never repent. They will continue on in their sin. Because they assent to some set of beliefs, because they, because they grasp to some set of beliefs about who Jesus is, they'll continue on in their sin and they'll be completely unchanged. And as we know, their fears weren't completely unfounded. We can look around us today and we can see just so many churches that are preaching this gospel that is lacking repentance. So many churches that are just preaching that if I can just get you to believe that X and Y are true, then surely you will have eternal life. If I can just get you to believe that these two truths, that these two things are true and you can believe them in your mind, there is no need for a changed life. That you can have salvation completely divorced from any sense of repentance, any sense of a changed life, any sense of submitting to Jesus Christ as Lord. This easy believism or this, this cheap grace as it is often called. And so you'll hear people, hear people talk about things like, you know, I've received Jesus Christ as my Savior, but he's not yet my Lord. As if you can come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and then sometime later you can decide whether or not you're really going to follow him. You can receive salvation today, and then in the future, I'm going to decide whether or not I'm really going to repent, whether or not I'm really going to go all in. But this kind of theology, it doesn't match with Scripture, not just with this morning's text, but so many other texts like it that make it clear that to follow after Jesus Christ as Savior, to claim Jesus Christ as Savior, is to follow Him as Lord, is to submit, is to live a changed life. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. We read Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You notice he leads with that. If you confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. This is so fundamental that it's the very first words of Jesus' public ministry that he would say, repent and believe. The same message that was preached by, preached by John the Baptist, this continual call to repentance. It's absolutely critical that man can't come to true, saving, biblical faith apart from repentance, apart from a turn and a changed life. And so we do well to ask ourselves this, this morning, what does penitent faith look like? What does believing repentance look like according to the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is he calling us to? And for starters, we do well to recognize that it's not just about outward activity. It's not just about outward change. Make no mistake, repentance will lead to a changed life. That was the message of John the Baptist. He was telling the brood of vipers that came to him. Remember, he was saying, bear fruit of repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He was calling them continually to bear this fruit that looked like repentance. But you need to recognize, I can't take an apple and staple it to a fig tree and all of a sudden call it an apple tree. That fruit is produced because of the kind of tree. That fruit is produced as a result of the nature. That there's got to be some internal change, a spiritual change, a change in nature in order to produce this kind of fruit that they're being called to produce. That our best efforts are when divorced from that. That our best efforts when separated from the internal working of Christ, the spiritual working of God, the, the change in our nature. That they're like filthy rags before him. That there's, there's no ability to please him. There's no ability to produce this kind of fruit that we're called to produce in our own efforts. And that self-trust, that self-help. That self-trust, even, even when it's got the heart that desires personal holiness, is sinful and despicable before God. He doesn't want us to try harder. He doesn't want us to help ourselves. 
He wants to lean against him and be changed by his word and by his spirit. And this was a huge problem during the time of the prophets. You, you read about during the time of like Hosea and, and, and Joel and, and Amos, right about the time that the Assyrians were going to come and they were going to just, just decimate Israel, there was this, the, the, the people had this real propensity towards outward change. So one of the prophets would come on behalf of God and they would speak this call to repentance. And the people were just great about pouring ashes on their head and, and, and sitting in sackcloth and fasting and mourning and weeping and, and, and ripping of their robes. But listen to what Jesus says, excuse me, what God says. Joel, the second chapter, 12 through 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend, that means to tear, and tear your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster, that God desires a heart that is broken, not clothes that are torn. Today we go to the opposite extreme, right? You don't often see people falling out whenever they're confronted with their sin. You don't see them tearing their clothes. You don't see them pouring ashes on their head. Instead, we either completely ignore our sin and deny that it was ever there, or we go into our quiet place and we try to fix it ourselves. That we replace these big public displays of mourning and sorrow and repentance. And instead we've taken them into our quiet place and tried to portray to the world this picture of perfect holiness. As if there never was any sin. As if we've got it all under control. As if righteousness is found in us somehow. Because deep down, our sinful nature and our, and our flesh, it hates true Repentance. It hates the idea that we've got to come and stand exposed before the Lord and allow him to confront us in our sin and then he do the work. Then he change us in our nature. We would rather be able to portray to the world this picture that we've, we've got it good. We'd rather go in and, and just change our own lives from the inside without being confronted and being shown exactly how wicked we are. There's an author named Kelly Needham and, and, and she says this. For years I thought that I was pretty good, but I'd been decorating the interior of my heart with a flashlight. From what I could see it looked fine. But the bright light of God's presence revealed the heart I'd worked so hard to beautify was covered in black mold. We want to we go into the darkness of our heart with a flashlight and just decorate the things that we can find. That We want to we come, come to this sickness and this brokenness that is within us and we want to throw up our own self-made bandages, our own quick fixes. Never daring to come to the great physician and showing him our brokenness and asking, us, asking him to heal us. I think about the story. Every time we talk about this, I think about the story of my Uncle Jack. It's, it was actually my dad's uncle, so that makes him my great uncle. Uncle Jack, and he would go off into the woods, and, you know, as, as boys were allowed to do back then in the good old days, you could go off in the woods with knives and, and play, right? And so they're out there. He's out there in the woods with a knife, and he's playing, and they were making spears or something. Well, he was doing the, the thing you don't do. He was cutting towards himself. And so Uncle Jack is there, and he's trying to make his little spear out of a stick, and he's cutting towards himself and buries the knife into his eyeball. Well, he wasn't in trouble for having the knife. He was allowed to have the knife. He was just stupid for carving towards his own face. And instead of going home and telling his parents, I've messed up, I stabbed myself in the eyeball, he tried to hide it. So that his eye shriveled up, and by the time I came along and met my great Uncle Jack, he only had one eye. That's us. That's us. We don't want the world to know what stupid things we've done. We don't go to the people that can actually help us. We hide, and as a result of that, we die. We lose things. We, we, we hide our sin like Adam and Eve with these, these fig leaf bikinis, trying to hide from God instead of standing and being exposed and letting him see us because it's a terrifying thing for sinful men to be exposed and to, and to stand naked before the living God. The righteous God, you, you see it over and over again in Scripture when Isaiah comes and he declares, woe is me, I am undone. 
I'm a sinful man standing before the perfect God or the apostle John as he just falls down on his face like a dead man or read Job. Job was a righteous man and listen to what he says. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you and therefore I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. We simply can't stand the light. We can't stand to come in the light and be exposed in our darkness. These are the words of Jesus after delivering to us the gospel. He says this, John 3, 19 through 20. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and he does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. We don't truly want to come into the light and be exposed in our sin. We don't want to come into the light and truly be healed. We want everybody to think we've got it together. In the reality, those dark places in the corners of our life, that black mold that's hiding in the corners of our life, we don't want to expose it because we don't really hate our sin that much. We don't desire repentance. We don't desire reconciliation. We don't desire anything to be made right more than we desire our own reputation to be upheld. Whether whether we desire the ability to stand comfortable before this God that we've made up for ourselves. And so we hide in the darkness. But you can't truly repent while hiding in the darkness. You can't truly repent while holding on to these dark areas of your heart. That saving repentance begins. That the repentance which leads to salvation, it begins with the desire to stand exposed, to see the glory of Christ. And then to see the glory of Christ in comparison with our own darkness. And thereby be driven to fall down with dust and ashes and ripping of our clothes. Yes. Driven by true sorrow that sees us in comparison to the Holy Father. This is part of why, the way I, the why, the part of why I pray the way that I pray after we read our text each week. I've, uh, it, it's an old psalm, actually, and, and one of my preaching heroes, a guy by the name of Alistair Begg, he routinely refers to it, and so it just stuck with me all these years. Father, make this book live to me. Show me yourself. That in his holy word, we would come to see his perfect righteousness, his eternal glory, his infinite love. We would see God as he really is. Instead of making little of God, we would make much of God and see God as he really is. And then the very next line is, show me myself, the real me. Not the me that I want to see. Not the me that's in a funhouse mirror. Not the me that's got Facebook filters put over it. Show me me, show me who I really am. So that I can stand and see my darkness compared to your light. You can show me my warts and my scars and my moles and everything that doesn't belong. Show me these two things together. That I may truly see me as I am because that's the way that true repentance begins. Seeing me in comparison to the living God, and it's only then that I'll stop grading on a curve. It's only then that I'll stop saying, well, you know, at least I'm not an adulterer. At least I'm not a thief. At least I'm not a murderer. Like the words of the man in in the temple, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. That I would stop grading on the curve, and I would stand exposed in the light of God's glorious nature, that I would see him compared to me, and it was then that I would cry out, Father God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I would see myself as I am, and I'm stop grading myself against you or you or you or you. I'd grade myself against the only perfect being that ever been, God, that would stand in his light, and I would see that I need to be changed. It's only then that I can be justified. And yet, repentance is more than just an awareness of sin. Repentance is more than just an awareness of sin, and it's more than even a, a deep sorrow for sin. We all know what it looks like when we stop short. We've all lived in that place before where we knew that we had sinned. We were even sorrowful for our sin. We had even taken action on our own abilities to try to make right our sin. But I'll tell you that that's exactly where Judas was. We read about Judas Iscariot. After he had betrayed Jesus and handed him over, we read these words, Matthew 27, 3 through 5. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind 
and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Listen, Judas changed his mind. He confessed that he was wrong. He, tried, he was sorrowful that he was wrong, and he tried to go and do whatever he thought he could do to alleviate himself of that guilt. In the end, Judas was lost. That's why it was right for Jesus to refer to him as the son of perdition. He was destined for destruction. It would have been better for him to have never been born than to be born and then to be thrown into the pit of hell because that's where he was, that he was lost. Dear ones, understanding your sin is not inherently bad. Being sorrowful under your sin is not inherently bad. Wanting to make your sin right is not inherently bad, but it falls short. Falls short of true biblical repentance because even the lost can do these things. It's when that sorrow is brought to us by God. It's when God is the one that's doing the work because inside ourselves, we don't have that ability. It's only when someone outside of us the one outside of space and time and matter, the other God. It's only when he imparts some change, when he brings about change in us that things can really happen. That's why repentance is a gift from him. We read about Peter as he's talking to the Gentiles, <clears throat> talking to, he's talking to the church about the idea that the Gentiles as well as the Jews have, have been saved, been called to salvation. Acts eleven eighteen. Then the Gentiles also heard that God had granted repentance. Restart. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's God who grants repentance. Yes, there's sorrow involved there, but it's a godly sorrow. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says this, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That there is a worldly grief, a worldly sorrow, but that sorrow just leads to death. It leads you to just stay where you are. But there's a godly grief where God illumines your heart. He brings you to an awareness and a sorrow of your sin, but he does not leave you there. He calls you to himself. He shows you that he is good. He shows you that he is faithful. And it's then that you bear real fruit, fruit in keeping with repentance. When John the Baptist was talking about this changed life that needs to come as a result of repentance, he talked about very practical things. He talked about giving generously and not using your position to extort things from your neighbors. You read in the book of Ezekiel when God tells the people to repent and turn from all transgressions. Or King Solomon in a dream when God is assuring him that even when he has set his mind, even when he has said that destruction will come, that he will be faithful if the people will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Their repentance is more than just a sorrow over sin. It's more than just an awareness of sin. It's a turning from sin. When we were in Israel, we went up north to a place called Tel Dan. And there's a false temple that's built up there in, up there in Tel Dan. And it's, it's, we, we learned something very fascinating. At least it was fascinating to me. You see, the temple in Jerusalem, the real temple that was built there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, it's oriented so that people, when they come into the temple to worship, they face the east. What they're doing is they're orienting themselves physically so that as they face God and they're there in worship, their backs are turned towards Egypt. It's this picture of we have turned our back on slavery. We have turned our back on death. We have turned our back on the wilderness, and we are coming to you, Holy Father, that has set us free from that. But this false temple up until Dan, it was oriented so the people had their back towards Jerusalem. What they were doing was physically, literally, they were turning their backs on God. That's what sin is. That we turn our backs away from God and towards death. We turn our backs away from God and towards sin and destruction and judgment. And what he's saying is, turn back to me. Turn away from your sin and turn towards me. I have freed you. 
I've paid the price for your freedom. I've done all that needs to happen from your freedom. So turn back to me. That's the call. And it is at this point that you really begin to see this connection between saving faith and true repentance. It's at this point where you truly begin to see why they must be there in order for salvation to come. That God has promised that those that would truly repent and turn to him, that they will be saved, that they will find salvation in him. And so you'll notice as you read back through the Old Testament that kind of fundamental to God's self-revelation were really two things. Number one, he would talk routinely about his nature as a jealous God, jealous for his people and jealous for his glory. But in addition to that, he's routinely reminding Moses and us and others in that time that he is a God that is merciful, abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger. This continually reciting this promise to his people that I am merciful, that I will receive your repentance. Turn to me, why would you die? Turn to me, why would you stay in your sin? Turn to me, why must I destroy you? Turn to me and be saved. Routinely throughout the Old Testament. That this call is so, it's so very fundamental, not just understanding who God is, but to seeing his nature that not only does he offer salvation, not only does he offer to forgive our sins if we would repent, but that that's his desire. He desires that none should perish. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's the very reason why God allows scoffers and blasphemers to continue to eat his food and drink his water and breathe his breath. The very reason why he allows that to happen is he's not done saving people yet. That he has been patient and waiting for those that will repent, those that will come to faith to come. That, that's just, that's his, not just his nature, that's his deepest desire of his heart. Because men, deep down, though, we know that we don't deserve forgiveness. And so what do we do? Either in our sin, either we're not done chasing death yet, and that's a very real chance for some people. I've met plenty of people, they're just not done chasing after death yet. But then there's some that they know deep down, I don't deserve forgiveness. I know that I'm sinful and I know that I deserve destruction. I know that I deserve to be wiped from the face of the earth. I know that there's no way that a perfectly righteous and holy God could ever forgive me in my sin. I know that there's nothing that I can do to earn that salvation, so I'm just going to stay here where I am. I'm not going to dare come near him. <coughs> I'm not going to dare turn to him because I know that there's nothing that I could do to be made right from him. That's where the good news of Jesus Christ intersects the whole story. It's not until you truly understand who Jesus Christ is. It's not until you truly understand that he has drank down the cup of his father's wrath. You understand that he fulfilled all righteousness. You understand that he died the death on the cross. You understand that he was resurrected in power. You understand that he offers you that trade. Until you understand those things, you're dang right you're going to stay where you're at. Why would you turn to a God that you know can't forgive you? Why would you run to a God that you know wants to destroy you? Until you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're going to stay right where you are. And I, I beg you to hear me because I think this is where so many people fall short. That we see the holiness of God. We see our own wretchedness. And yet we're like a dog that is, that's been caught eating his master's supper. We just run and cower in the corner because we know that to even come near him is to catch a beating. We won't even look him in the eye. We just cower in the corner. It's not that we don't know we're sinners. It's not that we don't know he's holy. It's not that we don't, know, don't feel badly for the things we've done. It's not that we don't wish we hadn't done those things. It's that we don't trust him not to beat us. We don't trust him not to flog us. We don't trust him that there is any good news to be had. So we don't come near him. We stay away. Dear friends, I need you to hear me. Jesus Christ, in his name, God has forgiven me. You're no more wicked a sinner than me. I promise you. If he can restore me, if he can redeem me, if he can use me in his kingdom, he'll do the same for you. 
In the name of his son, Jesus Christ, not because of anything I've done, not because of anything I've earned, he's forgiven me. He's freed me. And it was his desire, it was his delight to do this. That there were angels in heaven rejoicing in the day when I repented. And so the same with you. That they're not sitting there saying, destroy them, destroy them, destroy them. It's like the shepherd going after the lost sheep, the woman looking for the coin, the father waiting for his son. That he's desperately desiring that you would turn, that all of heaven rejoices. I see this picture of heaven sitting there, and they're all just kind of sitting around, and they're just kind of grumbling, there's whatever. And then somebody comes, and all of heaven just, yeah! This is the rejoicing of heaven, knowing that somebody has come to repentance and be saved. This is what your father most desperately wants. And you see it in the life of the prodigal son. It's, it's he's, he's there and he's away because we never come to the father with some sense of presumption upon his grace. We never come to him with some kind of arrogance as if we've earned something. Because we know deep down that we have it. And so we don't come to him. We owe God repentance even if there was no forgiveness found there. As the holy creator of all that is, we owe him our life. We owe him repentance. We see that in the prodigal son as he's gone and he's wasted all his money and he's just out there just living up the party life. It's about, the scripture says that he came to himself. Like he saw himself as he really was. He saw the destruction that was about him. He saw the sin. And so what did he say? I'm going to go back and maybe my father will just let me be a slave. Maybe my father will just let me back into the house. Let me let me sleep out with the cattle. Instead, what does the father do? He comes running out there and he greets him with a big bear hug. He runs after him. Men don't run. He had to hike up his man skirt or whatever they wore back then and he had to run after him and he had to he hugged him and he killed the fattened calf and he gave him a ring and he, he celebrated that his son had come back and so I, I believe that we see the just dang near the perfect picture of repentance in the life of king david and uh, i've read this text a number of times i'm going to read it out of the new living translation today just to give you something different but but you see it here with king david he was a man that knew sin goodness gracious he knew sin he had slept with another man's wife, gotten her pregnant, tried to hide it. When he couldn't hide it, he went ahead and killed her husband. Now he's taken this woman as his, as his wife, and he's confronted then by the prophet Nathan, and he knows. He knows he's guilty. He knew he was guilty. He's sorrowful. Listen to what he says, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sins. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. You'll be, pr you'll be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. Get, uh, you have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sin. Remove the stain of my guilt. Creating me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels. And they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O oh God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O oh Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. And you will not reject the broken and repentant heart, O oh God. I don't, you don't owe me anything, God. But if you would... If you will do the thing that you promised to do, I will sing your praises forever. You want to know how you know somebody that's truly been relieved of a lot? Those, those, those people that 
know the weight of their own sin and they know the holiness of God, you will see this joy in their walk. The people that you see with the most joy in their life, it's not because they've got it all figured out. It's not because they're the A-team. It's not because they're the people that have got it all together. The people that sing the praises of God, the people that can't shut up about God, they're the ones that had a big old pile of debt and God saved them from it. They know exactly what awaited them in the next life and they know the freedom that's found in him. So, golly, um, sorry about screaming. That was not in the script either, by the way. I'm sorry. Repent and believe, right? It doesn't stop with repentance. So while repentance and faith, repentance and belief are completely inseparable, they're not, they're not the same thing. While, while in repentance we see the, the glory of Christ, we see the glory of who God is, and we come to hate our sin and turn from it, in faith we see the glory of who God is, we see his holiness, and we cherish him. We delight in him. Whereas in repentance, we're turning from death. and faith, we're turning to Christ. And while these are inseparable things, they must be together. True, true, true faith and, and, and true repentance, they're, they're, they're not the same thing. We don't talk about them as if they're the same thing. At the same time, I need to make sure you understand that neither faith nor repentance earn you salvation. God does not save you as a reward for faith. God did not save you as a reward for repentance. They come from him in the first place. But beyond that, you don't earn your salvation. That these are just the, the, the way in which you reach out your hand and receive. This is the receiving of a gift that he has given you in your life. This is you're your reaching out of a hand and taking a gift that somebody else has purchased and is offering to you. You're not earning that gift. You haven't manufactured that gift. You're just reaching out your hand and you're receiving it. Understanding that even, even our faith, even our repentance, it's a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 talks about this. For our grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. That the way you reach out your hand to receive the gift is also a gift. You see this? You never escape God's hand in all of this. It's always his work, and it's by his hand that you're able to reach out your hand and receive the gift that he purchased. That faith comes as an unmerited free gift from God. Does he use circumstances? Does he use people? Absolutely. He uses people, he uses circumstances, he uses trials, he uses hurts, he uses success. He uses all these things to do his work, but it's always his work. It's always his work that brings these things about. And so there must be something outside of ourselves that brings us to this moment of cherishing Christ because he's not beautiful to us. In our sinful nature, in our fallen nature, there's nothing about him that is beautiful. There's nothing about him that's to be delighted in. There's nothing about him to cherish. That's why we twist Jesus and make him into something else. Because to the lost, Jesus as he is, is not beautiful. So we try to rearrange the parts and make for them a Jesus that they'll, they'll love. And in the end, what we find out is we've just created themselves. They're like a bird singing in a mirror. They're praising themselves. They're cherishing themselves. They're praying to themselves. It's only by his hand that we can come and truly cherish him above all else. It's only then that we can see him as this pearl of great price or this, this treasure in this field. And throughout scripture, we see this call to delight in him, to delight in his word according to Psalms 1, to delight in his way according to Micah 6, to delight in his will according to Psalm 40. That we would count everything else as lost. Everything else would be counted as lost compared to the surpassing glory, the delight, the beauty, the worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And so there's, there's really three uh, Parts, I guess we can call them parts, to saving faith. 
There's, there's really three elements to what happens here. And, and, and we'll have opportunity to really unpack these more as we walk through Mark's gospel. But we, we see that the beginning of saving faith begins with the knowledge of the gospel. That knowing the thing that you're supposed to believe in. And that's why there's such urgency in getting out there and sharing the gospel. Paul says in Romans 10, 14, How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That's our job to get out there because God's general pattern for salvation is that someone equipped with the word of God, filled with the spirit of God, goes and preaches the gospel of God. Are there times when it happens in other ways? Absolutely. God's God. He can do whatever he wants. If God can reach a child like John the Baptist and fill him with his spirit inside of his mother's womb, surely he can reach someone with a diminished intellect. Somebody that, that doesn't have the capacity to fully comprehend what it is that we're preaching in this gospel because of mental deficiency. Certainly, God's able to reach those people. But generally, it's through the preaching and the teaching of the gospel, the understanding of the knowledge that's contained in the gospel. And so I was thinking this week about the thief on the cross. You know, we, we, we like to point to that thief on the cross next to Jesus Christ, and we like to talk about him as if he's some just one-off, like, like he's just this one crazy way that God saves, and that's not normally the way he saves. But listen to, if you really listen to what his confession is, Luke 23, 39 through 43, one of the criminals <clears throat> was railing against him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving our due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There's so much theology in these three sentences. Listen, we talk about it as if this is just some random thing. This is some weird thing. But what do you know about what these guys know based on what they said? Number one, they know the claims that Christ and his apostles have made. They know that he has claimed to be the Christ. They know that he has claimed to be the one that has come to save people because they're telling him, aren't you the Christ? Then why don't you save us? They know that they, at least the one penitent uh, thief on the cross, he knew that he deserved the judgment that was upon him. He knew that he was a sinner and that he, know, he knew that he needed to be condemned. Number two, he knew that Jesus was without sin. He knew that Jesus didn't deserve to die. He knew that there was no reason for him to be hanging there on that cross. They also knew that Jesus was a king and that his kingdom was coming. They knew that the kingdom was coming and that the kingdom was not of this world and it wasn't yet fully there. Number three, how many times have I said three? Four, five, something, right? Roman numeral six, what happened was he, he knew that Jesus wasn't going to stay dead and neither was he because he's talking about something in the future, right? He's saying we're, we're here to die so that when you come into your kingdom, your kingdom which comes after this, would you remember me? And then certainly he understood that Jesus had come to forgive sinners like him or he wouldn't have asked saying, remember me. That's a whole lot of theology. Somebody comes into my office and says, I want to be baptized, and they tell me that, I say, get the water ready. We're going. This dude could be a missionary. What are we talking about here? He understood and he knew what it was. It's a beautiful example of conversion. It's so critical that we understand this because the beginning of saving faith, the beginning of faith that saves, it must, must have the proper object. It must set our faith on the proper object, being Christ. The true Christ, the Jesus Christ that we find in the Bible. You'll hear people in, in, in today's postmodern society, they'll talk about things like, you know, well, all you got to do is have faith. Faith in what? They'll praise people for being faithful. And then as you really talk to them and you drill down, what you find out is they're just faithful in themselves. They're faithful in their spouse or in their government or in their church. They're not faithful in the Jesus of the Bible. They've just made up some things and then they believe it. And not only will faith like that not save, 
it, har- it, it harms you. It leads you further into darkness. It's a confusing thing. And so that saving faith has got to be placed on the proper object. That's why I push you so hard to wrestle with the text, to wrestle with the scripture, to think rightly about God. Because our greatest fear should be that we get to the end of this life and find out, yes, we were faithful people, but our faith was not in anything that could ever save us. So we didn't truly know and believe the gospel that God has revealed to us here. So saving faith must be placed in the right object, but knowledge isn't merely enough. There was never a day when I couldn't recite to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was like a little parrot. I'd heard the words. I'd, I, I knew the gospel. I could stand up here as a little five-year-old, and I could tell you all about salvation. I could tell you all about who Jesus was. I could tell you all about who God was. I could tell you about sin. I don't know that I understood atonement, but I understood some other stuff, right? I knew enough that I could recite for you pretty faithfully what the gospel was, but that's not enough. This is more than just mental cognition, that there's, there's, there's got to be a conviction that this thing must move from our head to our heart. There's got to be a moment in which we truly believe this stuff. That it, it moves from knowledge to acceptance, to assent, to acknowledgement, to agreement. There's a point at which we say, yes, I believe these things to be true. And so that, that's why the work of the apostles is, is so critical. The work of, uh, of the apostles and, and the recording of the gospels that we have, that's why it's so critical. That's part of what they were doing was they were, they were evidencing for us. They were assuring us that the things that we read about Jesus are true. Read in John 20, 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That while there was never a moment when I couldn't recite for you the gospel, there was a... That's okay, go ahead and get on. I know, we're good. Nothing you can do, guys, not a big deal. And so, while there was never a time when I couldn't recite for you the knowledge, there was a moment. For me, it was probably around 13 years old. There was a moment in which I truly believed that, which I truly agreed with that, which I, which I, which I truly accepted that as, as truth. Not that God was sitting around waiting for me to accept, but there was a moment in which it moved from my head to my heart when I truly did believe. But biblical, biblical faith, saving faith, it doesn't even stop there. It's not just about knowledge. It's not just about believing. You know, you're all familiar with the words of James when he says that even the demons believe. And nobody believes that the demons are saved, but the demons believe and they shudder. Satan knows who Jesus is. Satan knows and believes the gospel. His demons know and believe the gospel. As David Platt says, every drunk dude in a bar on Friday night knows Jesus, believes him to be his Lord, but that falls way short of the salvation that we find. You'll often hear me talk about Instead of using the word faith or belief, you'll often hear me talk about trusting in Christ or following after Christ. Not that there's anything with the words faith or belief. Listen, they're in the Bible. God used these words for a reason. These men inspired by the Holy Spirit, they use these words. And these words don't fall short. The problem is our understanding falls short. We've heard these words so much that we've just taken that which God is calling us to and we've turned it into just, just an intellectual thing. Do I just agree with these arguments? Do I believe that X and Y are true? If I believe that X and Y are true, then surely I must be saved. But what we find in the Gospels are that God isn't just calling us to believe in something. He's not just calling us to know something. He's calling us to be changed by that something, just like in repentance. There must be fruit. There must be change. In faith, there must be fruit. There must be change, a changed life marked by Christ. So in, in Hebrew, there's not really a noun for faith. Like faith isn't, isn't so much a thing for them. It's a, it's a verb. It's an action. And so 
More often you'll hear not just talk about someone having faith, but you hear about things they did because of their faith. Their faith actually playing out in their life. You see the difference? It's not, you know, just talk about it. It is right to say, I have faith. Your faith is yours. But ultimately that faith must lean to something. There was, there was, a, there was a moment at which I looked, I've, I've talked about this stage before, right? There was a moment at which I looked at this stage and I believed that it would hold me. Somebody told me, I had the knowledge that it would hold me, I believed that it would hold me, but it wasn't until I stood upon it that became my faith, that I knew that this thing would hold me, that I actually put my trust in this thing that it would hold me up. I don't know when that day came in my life. I can't look backwards and see evidence that I was truly following after Christ, truly trusting in Christ, to somewhere a whole lot later, maybe 30 years old even. That's a terrifying thing, because I was standing up here preaching sermons long before that. As long as I knew the words, as long as I had enough internal conviction to kind of muster some confidence when I said them, there wasn't a moment, probably prior to about 10 years ago, when I can look back at my life and I can say, you know what, I was really trusting Christ. I was really leaning into Christ. I was really following after Christ. And so that's what we see here, that, that God has called us to that. And so I, I really did hope I would have more time and we could read all of Hebrews 11, but but. What you see there in the book of Hebrews, in the 10 chapters leading up to Hebrews 11, what you see is that um, the author there is he's just making clear to these, to these Jewish readers, these Jewish believers, that Christ is better. See, just, just Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than Aaron. Christ is better than the, than the, than the, than the prophets. He's better than the law. His, that his covenant is greatest. That just over and over again, just making it clear that Jesus is greater. That Jesus is greater and that his covenant is the greatest. And then he's, he's giving them assurance that God hasn't changed his plan. That God's plan was never a plan of works. That God's, God's plan was never that his people would be saved by the law. That the plan was always that they would be saved through faith. And then as you walk through the 11th chapter there, he just gives these illustrations. Just, just, just time after time when God's people have done something to evidence their faith. How, how they acted and how they responded and they did something. This evidence that they had truly been, that they had truly been saved. And he's, he's encouraging these people there as they read this. He's saying, come all the way. Come all the way. Yes, you know this truth about this gospel. And yes, you believe this truth. But come all the way to a changed life. Don't stop there. Don't stop there. Keep coming. Keep coming. Keep coming. Keep coming. He's urging them. Keep coming all the way to saving faith. You're not there yet. I, I do think I'll read the, 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 the first two verses in Hebrews 12. He says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured to the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is so this is so good. I don't care that we're late. This is so good because listen to what he's saying here. He's saying, look, the, the, the term here for cloud of witnesses, it's like spectators in a, in, a, in, a, in a sporting event. This cloud of witnesses, it's like dudes and, and women sitting in a seat watching a race on a track. And he's saying there's these people here and they've already run their race. They've already gone before you. They've already endured in the faith and they're there and they're cheering you on. And they're telling you, just keep going. You're not there yet. Keep going, keep going, keep going. And it, while you're running your race, at the same time they're saying, hey, there's stuff clinging to you. There's sin weighing you down. It's like a chain dragging behind you. Let loose of that chain. Don't hold on to that chain. You're not going to finish your race clinging on to the sin. You've got to let loose of it. And look, here's Jesus. This 
faith is from Jesus. He will perfect your faith. He's already paid for that stuff that you're lugging around the track. Take it off your back and hand it to him and keep going. Don't worry about how much further your race has. Don't worry about 10 miles down the track. Just take the next right step. But the next right step isn't going to be easy with this stuff on your back. So get rid of it and hand it to him and now fix your eyes on him. Don't worry about us that are cheering. Don't worry about the other runners. Don't worry about the condition of the track. You just keep running. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ because he's run this race. He's run this race, and he endured to the end. And we're here, and we're cheering for you because we've endured to the end. And we're building each other up, and we're spurring each other on. And you're dumping your stuff onto Jesus because new stuff keeps jumping out of the stands and onto your back. Where would this come from? I don't know. Jesus, please take it. i got another step to take. I don't have energy to take any more steps. And so I'm keeping my eyes fixed on him because I know that he's run this same race. He knows what it feels like to be surrounded by these people that are dragging you down and tearing you down, the persecution and all this. So keep your eyes fixed on him and keep going. That's what saving faith looks like father god we praise you and we thank you we thank you father that um thank you father that you've not left us here to figure out salvation you've not left us here to earn anything in your kingdom but that you've paid all that needs to be paid and sending your son jesus christ father we thank you that you've not called us to endure on our own that you've not only given us a savior who can relate to us in every way but that you've given us a church a body a people who can come alongside us and encourage us build us up spur each other on help to carry each other's burdens father i thank you for this people may we love each other the way that you have loved us may we love your son with a selfless unpresuming humble love father if there's any here this morning that has not yet responded father not yet responded to the offer to repent believe and be saved father i pray that you would spur in their hearts now we love you we trust you and we thank you it's your son's precious name we pray amen